Last week at our charity campaign, Baruch Hashem, big, big miracles, and it was so heartwarming to see so many people um, extending so much love and care and, and, uh, and support for Mayan and for our work. And I really, 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 from the bottom of my heart, want to thank all those who helped in uh, making it happen and all those who contributed. Thank you, thank you, and Hashem should bless you all with... Um, all that you need and all that you want um, in the material and in the spiritual. Thanks. Um, tonight's class was dedicated by David and Shana Hach, and this is in honor of their son, Yisrael Isser's bris that was last week. Um, may Hashem bless him. Um, just like he went into the bris, he should go into Torah, and l'chupa and l'maisim toivim for Torah to chupa and to good deeds. And may you and your wife raise him in good health and have lots and lots of wonderful, wonderful Yiddish chassidish and nachas from him. And uh, may he bring you a lot, a lot, a lot of simcha and only happiness in your life. Mazel tov and mazel tov. Another dedication today uh, was by Dorothy Melvin. And this is for a... Lots of her family members who, sadly, on this such a suspicious time, the 13th or 14th of Ador, they don't even know when exactly. Uh, oh, she, she, she keeps the yard site on Shushan Purim, on the 15th of Ador, for a family that was, was uh, transported, I think, to Auschwitz or to one of, the trans, uh, one of the concentration camps. She wants me to mention their names um, 
for being alias neshama to them. Yitzchak, and she doesn't even, not, not exactly sure, her grandfather Yitzchak, possibly Ben Michoel. Great aunt Estrella, possibly Bat Michoel. Uh, step-grandmother Bona Riva Tiano and her aunt Miriam, married to Michal and children. Names are also unknown. Possibly Esther or Rachel. Uh, her aunt Polina, Bas Yitzchak, her husband and children, names unknown. Also possible Esther or Rachel, I'm sure in heaven they know. Um, and there's also a grandmother, Rivka Bas Meir, and an uncle, Meir Ben Yitzchak, and an uncle, Michal Ben Yitzchak. Um, the war of Amalek, which Purim is a victory over Amalek, may Hashem already ultimately defeat all evil in the world and bring these holy souls back into this world with Chiesa Mason. Um, not one drop of blood will, has gone in vain. Everything will, all Nishamas will come back here into this world to illuminate this world, and evil will be vanquished and destroyed forever and ever. It's part of what the Shabbos is all about. The Shabbos of Mochitim Chazechar Amalek. Uh, may, may, may we see the completion of that. Another dedication this week was by Mayan Yisrael. Um, I'd like to dedicate this class over here at Mayan to a very dear friend of ours, Peter Kraus, who's been a big, big support for us all the time. And his father's yard site is, was today, the 8th of Ador. So we're, we're dedicating the Shir and the CD to him. Yol Menachem ben Reb Tzadik HaLevi, may your father's neshama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May he channel lots of brachas and mazel and good things to you and to your family for, 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 for only, only happy things and only, only goodness. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, so much. Um, now there's one more dedication. Um, this is a personal, very personal to me. Um, I'm about to fly into New York right after this class. Um, I had a, my favorite uncle who was growing up, was very, very close to me and was always our funny uncle, always gave us a good time, and it was great. And um, young man sadly passed away uh, just Sunday. So I'm going actually to my father, sitting Shiva. So I want to dedicate the class to my uncle, Eliezer Yehuda, Ben Ruvain. Uh, may, may this be a big schuss to his neshama, and may a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of, I mean, the family be comforted, and hopefully the departure is going to be very short. And hopefully very, very soon all Neshamas are going to come back and only, should know only of simchas and good things. Um, okay, so thanks for all those dedications. And we're ready to learn today's class. I'm not going to focus on the parsha. Big Yom Tov is coming, Purim. We're going to focus on the holiday of Purim. There is a known story um, that, uh, I guess it's a Purim story. Purim stories are happy stories. Uh, there is a known story um, of a town drunkard. His name was, let's call him, you know, Shmerel the Shikr. And he was drunk always, but when the month of Adar came, he would get super drunk. The entire month of Adar, he was guzzling and guzzling. And when they would ask him, and they would say, uh, Shmerel, you know, Purim is Purim, but they were like, well, well, what's going on? So he said that you should know, if you took a look at the Megillah, you see that Haman made a goral, made a, a lot to destroy the Jewish people. And he made the whole lot be on one day. Like he picked a day, went to destroy. Now, that's crazy. Why in the world did Haman make a lottery and pick it one day? I mean, you see that Hitler wanted to destroy the Jewish people and used all of his resources. Um, and, 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 and the Germans had such a machinery. And yet, you know, they couldn't accomplish what they wanted to accomplish in a few years. How in the world was Haman thinking that he would be able to destroy all of the Jewish people 
all on one day. So really, he says, Haman, I know Haman's plan. Haman's plan really was that he wanted to do the month, the entire month of Adar, as it says in the Pasuk, that when he cast the lots, he made mechodesh lechodesh, meyom leyom. He wanted a, and he really wanted the entire month of Adar. And he was about to set the entire month of Adar as a month of slaughter. But then it occurred to him, and his thought was, what's going to happen if this whole this planning is not going to work out? If Utsu eats of a sufar if plans are made and all kinds of things are done, schemes are schemed, and Kiyomanu Kel God is with us, so everything gets annulled. So what's going to happen if he's going to have the same horrible end like all those predecessors who came before him who tried to harm the Jewish people, and they ended up in the dustbins of history? So what? What might happen? So then the Jews are going to have a yamtif. The Jewish people are going to celebrate. And then they're going to party for the entire month of Adar. So Haman couldn't stand that we are going to celebrate for the entire month of Adar. Because if he would make his decree for the entire month, and then the month would become a Yomtev, then Jews would celebrate for the entire month. And therefore, because he was scared that that might happen, he had a doubt. So he decided to narrow it down only to one day. And once... The, the decree is one day, even if it doesn't work out his way, and it turns into a holiday, and it turns into a holiday, at least the Jews are only going to have a one-day holiday, and not an entire month. But I, Shmerel, knows the truth. And I know what his intentions were. So I celebrate the entire month of Ador. L'chaim. That was his, his, his take. Now, is he that wrong that Haman could not stand Jews celebrating. Well, we look in the Medrash, Shmerel wasn't off. It's really, really a Medrash. That that's what bothered Haman. He was bothered by the fact that we Jews are always partying. The Medrash says like this, that when Haman came to Ahasuerus, he said to him, Yeshno am echad. There is this one people. Yeshno am echad. There is this one people. And the Medrash says, takes the word Yeshno, and plays on that word. Yeshno means there is. But the Medrash takes the word Yeshno and reads it like the word Shinayim. Yeshno from the word Shain. Shain means teeth. Yeshno Amachad, there is a toothful people. A people of teeth. Why are they people of teeth? Because they're always eating. Alright? Jews are always eating. Yeshno And he says like this, Omalei, this is a Medrash, in Medrash Rabbah. Perek Zion in the Megillah. Omalei, he said, They have big teeth. They eat and they drink. And they claim, Ah, It's a celebration of Shabbos. It's a celebration of Yantiv. And not only this, They cause inflation. Because they're always buying lots and lots and lots of food. So they cause the price of fruit to go up. Jews are the cause of the entire, all the inflation that there is in the world. It's their fault. First of all, once every seven days is Shabbos. Once every 30 days is Rosh Chodesh. From here you see it's proof that like Maya, we have a Rosh Chodesh party every Rosh Chodesh. And we're actually supposed to feast on Rosh Chodesh, and that's what Haman didn't like. Next, Benisan, and the month of Nisan comes ahead. Pischa is Pesach. Besiv, Haman Sivan comes ahead. Atzeres, Shavuos. Betishrei, on Tishrei, Reishata, Rosh Hashanah. The Tzayim and the big fast, which the Jews have to eat before the fast, 
But after the fast, the Chaga, the Metalalta, and the Yomtev of Shade, which is Sukkot. Amalei Achashverosh, Achashverosh says to him, Kachen Metzuvim B'Terasan, this is how they're commanded in their Torah. Amalei Haman, so Haman says, Eloi Misham Remes Moya Dehem, if at least they would keep their holidays, and also our holidays. Okay, so they have more holidays than us, but they have theirs and they also celebrate ours. They are not partaking in your holidays. The, 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 the holidays of the king, they don't do. They do not commemorate or celebrate Akalandus. And Stragila, these must have been Persian days of celebration. They don't keep these. They only keep theirs. Anyways, he was telling Ahasuerus, Jews are partying too much. Exactly what we had, uh, that uh, Shmerel the Shikha said. So God says, Russia, you wicked one. You are casting an evil eye on their yomtivs. I will make you fall before them. And I'm going to add another yomtiv. So not only are you not going to be able to stop them and subtract their holidays, quite in the country, you're going to be the source of another holiday. And what a holiday. A holiday of such partying like we don't have any other yontif. Purim is the days of Purim. So you see, there's truth to that. And it's interesting, that's the explanation why. All the holidays, there is a limit to how much one can drink, how much one can celebrate, how, how wild, so to speak, the party can get. There is a limit. Because the Ramam says that they used to send out Shomrim. In the time of the Beis Amikdash, the Beisdin was in charge of sending out guards to keep the party partying limited, to make sure no one drinks too much, and so on and so forth. But not on Purim. Purim, there's an obligation of getting tipsy, until you don't know. Completely no restraints, no limitations. Of course, ask your rabbi what that really means. But it really means that we do have to be really, really, really besimcha. When I'm saying ask your local rav means in terms of the actual drinking, but in terms of the joy, boundless, 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 and boundless. Why? Because every other yomtiv, every other yomtiv, the yomtiv is related to a specific occurrence. Why are we celebrating? Because we went out of Egypt. Why are we celebrating? Because we got the Torah. Why are we celebrating? Because God did this for us. He protected us in the desert. So each yomtiv has a specific reason, and that reason kind of is a limitation that limits the, the celebration. How much? Well, how? in accordance to the greatness of whatever happened. But on Purim, the celebration is for the sake of celebration, for celebrating itself. There's no other reason but, see, Haman came out against Jews celebrating. So now we're going to celebrate just because we won that we can celebrate. And if, how much do we celebrate? Endless. So that's why this Yom Tev is an endless celebration precisely because of that reason. Okay, that have been said. But is there a, maybe perhaps a deeper reason? Why Haman, besides Shmerel's reason that we gave earlier, but perhaps a deeper reason why Haman did narrow it down to one particular day. 13th. The 13th of Adar is when he decreed his decree. Is there any particular reason that the Gezerah 
the decree, to kill, to annihilate, to destroy, all Jews, from young to old, or from young, um, yeah, from young to old, on one day the 13th. Is it just random that, okay, he cast a lot, but which seems that there's a certain randomness to it, but the fact that it came out on the 13th, is there a significance to that? It's interesting. Purim is the 13th day of the 12th month. It couldn't be the 13th day of the 13th month because we don't have a 13th month. But in a year, which is not this year, but in a year that we do have 13 months, we add an extra Adar on a leap year. And then which Purim is the main Purim? The second Adar, which means the decree then is on the 13th day of the 13th month. Now again, Purim is not on the 13th day because the 13th day itself was the day when we were waging war. The mobs were ready. Even though Ahasuerus had sided already with the Jews and Haman was killed immediately, a short time after he made the decree, but the Jew haters and the anti-Semites that were still out all over the world were still, were still excited about the thought and the idea that there would be a day to kill the Jewish people. So they ganged up and they came, and the mobs came out ready to, 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 to have a pogrom. But the Jews fought back and they also had, I guess, assistance from the king's armies, and they defeated their enemies. But the war went on the 13th. So we don't make the celebration on the 13th. Quite on the contrary, it's a fast day, the 13th. We celebrate, usually it's a fast day, this year it's a little earlier. And then we celebrate when? We celebrate on the 15th. We celebrate on the 15th of, uh, I'm sorry, on the 14th, and, and on Shushan Purim in certain places on the 15th. But let's understand why was the Gezerah of Haman on the 13th? Is there significance to that? Now, let's just analyze number 13. It's an interesting number. Because outside, in the, outside of the Jewish world, 13 has this real sense of neg- negativity. People are scared of the 13. If you notice on many buildings, if you're going up the elevator, there's no 13th floor. On many airlines, there's no row 13. I don't know if every airline, but on many airlines, there's no row 13. So there is some kind of a superstition about number 13. People are very uncomfortable. Now, there is, to add to that, there is a, a notion called Friday the 13th. When any month comes out that uh, the, the, the 13th of the month, not on our Jewish calendar, on the other calendar, um, when it comes out on 13, people have a fear that bad things are going to happen on that day. I even looked it up in Google. I googled the Friday and found on Wikipedia. So I looked this up. There is even a name for the phobia. I don't remember it. I didn't write it down. But there's a name for this kind of phobia of those people that are terrified of, terrified of Friday the 13th. So let's understand. Is there something to that? And how is the 13th for us, the Jewish people? You see, the decree was on the 13th day. And again even possibly related to the 13th month, even though not always. Is is there something to that? Now, the Jewish people, we celebrate 13. We celebrate 13 as that's bar mitzvah. A Jewish boy has his bar mitzvah on the 13th, 13 years. That means the 13th is marked as a very, very special day. And we also know there's 13 attributes of mercy. There's something about 13 that's very special. But on the other hand, you see that Haman's decree comes out on the 13th to annihilate the Jewish people. So bottom line, 13 good or 13 bad? Bad or good? 
So the answer to that question is depending on whose side you are. There's two forces in, in, in creation. There's the side of holy and the side of the unholy. And the two of them are battling with each other continuously. From the day that Chava ate from the tree, Chava Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, and they gave it to her husband, and then they passed the, the infection to all the animals and to all the entire world, and passed that down the germs of the Eitz Adas. And the Eitz Adas was Tovara, a mixture of good and bad. Everything in this world became a mishmash of good and evil. And every moment and in every experience and in every reality, there's no one that's free from this battle. The battle rages continuously between the forces of goodness versus the forces of evil, the forces of light versus the, first, the forces of darkness. And they're struggling with each other. And uh, the 13, as we'll see, is, 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 a, is a favorite on one of the sides and very, very frightening on the other side. In order to understand this, however, we need to get a better understanding of what is holy. What defines holy? What means, what is holiness? So the true definition of holy, obviously God is holy. And everything related to Hashem is holy. So we know a Torah is holy because it is related to God. Jewish people are God's people, we're a holy people. And sometimes you say, this person is a tzaddik, he's a holy person. But if we can find, try to find what really defines holiness, what really is the mark that if this is this, it's holy. If not, it's not holy. So the main identifying mark says in Tanya, very, 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 very important passage of Tanya, chapter 6, a couple of lines. Where over there, Shneer Zalman of the Yadi, the holy altar ever, defines what is holy. He says, anything that acknowledges, recognizes, and surrenders to, its create, to, to, to the creator that's creating it is holy. Again, everything that acknowledges, recognizes, and surrenders. It recognizes that it did not create itself, but someone is creating it. And thereby, therefore, it turns around and says, I am surrendering to that which is creating me, and, the, and I want to do that which, that which I was created for. Which means everything that's living with true purpose is holy. Because the Creator is the source of everything. God is the source of everything. Hashem is the source of all of existence. And Hashem brought everything into existence. Hashem did not create even one thing in vain. And what is the purpose of every creature and every being and every moment of time and every speck of space? What is the purpose? I was created to serve my Creator. Is the, is, is the purpose of the human being. But kol, the Mishnah says in Pirkei Yavis, kol everything that God created was lichvodo for His honor. That means, number one, it means if I acknowledge that someone created me, then I acknowledge that I am a purposeful being. Because the Creator wouldn't just have brought me in for no reason at all. Just like no one does. And people don't do it. You know, you're made for nothing. You do because you, you, in, you had some intention in mind. So the Creator had some intention in creating me. And here's another thing, very important. I can't decide what that purpose is. I can't decide my purpose is to be a doctor or my purpose is to be a lawyer or my purpose is to be this or my purpose is to be that. Because my purpose preceded me. Because the purpose existed before I came around. Why? Before I was, someone decided that I should be. 
And, and whoever that was had a purpose in making me be, from non-being into beingness. So the purpose is there before me. Now I have to find out what that purpose is. And then I have to be willing to surrender to that purpose. And when you're willing to do, go through those steps, acknowledge that you're not God, you didn't create yourself, and God created you, and God has a purpose, and what is that purpose? Finding out, and now that I have that, I know what that purpose is, now I want to actualize that purpose. So when I'm actualizing that purpose and doing what God wants of me and created me for, then I am in holiness. Because I'm included in God's reality. That's Kedusha. Anything that is not acknowledging that basic truth, but rather is claims to exist outside of God's plan, or God's jurisdiction, or God, meaning it claims, I am, I just exist. And therefore, if, the, if no one created me, and therefore my, my, my life is not in servitude to the one that made me, so then my life is about me. The lie about me, that means I am God, because I, I don't have a creator, I created, so that I become God. That's what God means, by the way. In Aserah Adibris, a few weeks ago, when Hashem says, I am God, you're God, He also warns us, don't have any other gods. So the deeper meaning, according to the Hasidic understanding of it, is not just don't have another god to bow down to, believes them like the Greeks who had many gods. doesn't mean that, it means something much deeper than that. Do not believe that you're a god. Don't believe that there is existence. Don't walk around as if you exist, because you exist. That means in truth of truth, if I'm living in a holy consciousness, every second I ask, why? How can I serve? Why am I here right now? Why was I put in this situation? What's my purpose? We the Jewish people who accepted the Torah and accepted to live in subservience, dedicated and to devoted to fulfill God's dream God's desire in creation, and to that we dedicate and devote all of our resources, our physical body, all of our physical energy, our talents, our money, everything we own, everything is dedicated to do God's will. We are a holy people. That's our holiness. Because we're in surrender to Hashem. Others that are living just to live and to enjoy life for themselves, for their own, just because they exist, that's unholy. We Jews are naturally holy because we have a natural neshama that is very, 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 very strongly and sharply aware of this reality and is by nature battle to Hashem, nullified to God. That's our neshama. Our body isn't necessarily on the same page. That's why our body is not always holy. Neshama shenosato bi tohoi the neshama that you put in me, she is pure. She is holy. The body? Depends. The body can go into holiness and out of holiness. In and out, in and out. Depend on, depending on who's running the show. Our neshama or our kalipa side, the unholy side within us, that is not Jewish. The Jew inside of us is our neshama. The part of us that's not Jew, that, that's not the neshama, our animal, animal soul that is living without godly awareness, isn't Jewish. That's called Hagoy Asher Bekirbacha. That's the Gentile that's in us. So we as Jews have possessed, we're Jewish, and we have a Gentile within us too. And depending on the moment, depending who we're listening to, our godly soul in surrender to God or not. Now, a Gentile could be holy too. When? When the Gentile 
um, recognizes Hashem and therefore also wants to devote his or her life to serving God, which is not the natural state of the Gentile, but something that he or she can acquire. And if they do, do that, then they too, and if they live in support of the Jewish people, in support of Israel, and in support of the Jewish people, and in support of furthering God's plan in the world, then the nations as well become holy to, a, to whatever degree it's possible. And that's Kedusha. So the famous story, the, the fourth Chabad, I, I mentioned this, year, this story once at a shir, but it's just a beautiful story that illustrates what, what, what we mean, what we're talking about. The fourth Chabad Rebbe, it, this story is such an important story that it's one of the stories that is brought in the back of the book of Tehillim, Tehillim Oil of Yosef Yitzchak, which is special Tehillim, which was printed by the previous Chabad Rebbe. And in the back there are a few beautiful letters, and amongst those letters are beautiful stories. This is one of the stories. That the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rebbe Shalom Dev Ber, known as Rebbe Rashab, and he was a little boy, was playing with his brother, Rebbe Zalman Aaron, who was a little older than him, about a year and a half or two years older than him. They were in the, it was a hot July, Tammuz, probably June, July, outside in the backyard. And as they're playing together, their father, Rebbe Shmuel, the fourth Rebbe, known as the Rebbe Marash, had a little sukkah outside, a little booth, where he would sit because it was hot. And over there, there would come a little wind and it had shade, and he had a, and he had a a, a bookshelf over there and he would study. That's the place he would study. The two boys came home from school and they had a discussion. And they were talking about the Jewish people and what makes the Jewish people so special. And the older brother was talking. And he said to his younger brother, Jews are special because they learn and they daven. They learn, they're very, first of all he said they're very smart people. They learn Torah. And um, both the revealed part of the Torah and the hidden part of the and Kabbalah, and they daven with great medit- meditation, real dveikus and cleaving to Hashem. That's what this little boy, seven years old, told his younger brother. The little brother, who was later going to be the Rebbe, said to his older brother, I understand that's true about those who do study and are scholarly, and those who daven for many hours. But how about the simple Jews? who are not davening for hours, and are not studying, why are they special? And the older brother didn't know, and he didn't have an answer. Their sister, her name was Devorah Leah, went to her father, and her father called and said, what are the boys talking about? Father, I guess, heard them with a conversation, maybe he couldn't hear exactly. So he asked her, what are the boys talking about? And she told her father what her brothers were discussing. So her father sent her, sent her to call her brothers in. So her little brother, I think she was older than them, her little brothers came in, and he told them, wait, he told them that, he, that they should wait there, and he said, call me, call for me Bintzion the Mesharis. Now Bintzion was the attendant, and he was a very simple Jew. And he b- didn't learn anything, as a, he didn't have any Torah knowledge. He, even reading was very difficult to him. And he would read and he would make many mistakes. If you had listened to him reading, it would be kind of funny because he really could not pronounce the words correctly. But he was a very sincere Jew. And he would sit and say lots of Tehillim. Every day, he maybe said the whole Tehillim. In addition to that, he would attend all the shiurim that were given. The shiur was given in Shul in Ein Yaakov. Ein Yaakov are stories of the Talmud. He would participate in that. He'd daven three, days with, three times a day in a minion. Very sincere, but as simple as simple can be. He called Benzian the Mesharis, and Benzian came, and the Rebbe says to him, Benzian has gegessen, did you eat? Did you eat today? And Benzian said, yes. And then the Rebbe asked him, has good gegessen, did you eat well? 
So he says, Vasa is good kegats. What do you mean ate well? Um, okay. So the Rebbe asked him, why do you eat? So he says, I eat to live. What kind of question is that? I eat to live. So the Rebbe said to him, and why do you live? Benzian, why do you need to live? And Benzian said, I live. Said, I can be a Jew and uh, serve Hashem. And he gave a big sigh. Then the Rebbe said, okay, thank you, you can go. And he said, call me in Ivan. Ivan, Ivan, was the, uh, was the coachman. Now Ivan, Ivan grew up amongst Jews. And he spoke a good Yiddish. Because yeah, the Rebbe calls him in and the Rebbe says, Ask in Yiddish. Did you eat today? He said, yeah. Eat well? Sure. And why did you eat? Why, why did you eat? He says, because I want to live. What do you mean? I need to live. And why, why do you want to live? So even says, I want to live so I can take a swig of vodka and have myself a sandwich. And he's smiling. And the Rebbe sends him off. He says, thank you, Ivan. That's... And the Rebbe turns to his children. And he says, you see the difference? You see the difference? A Jew eats to be healthy. Why does he want to be healthy? So they don't, do eats so they can live. To be healthy and live. Why does he want to live? To be able to serve Hashem. And he sighs because he's worried that maybe, maybe he doesn't mean it with the full, full truth. So he's, he's, it bothers him. He's, he's thinking like me. It's not, it's not, it, there's a certain dissatisfaction because he's worried that maybe it's not completely true. He says, Ivan eats to live. But why does he live? He lives to eat. And not only that, if you saw Ivan's face, if you saw, if you saw Ivan's face when he was describing to me the next meal that he was going to have, you can see inside of him that there was such a deep inner pleasure and delight when he was thinking about the sandwich that he was going to have later with the swig of vodka. That's his pleasure and that's his deep delight. That at the core is the difference and the root of Kedusha and holiness. Jews are holy because of that's their, their, their general innate deepest consciousness is a bitle and nullification to the Creator. I'm here for a purpose. You'll see an amazing thing. Jewish people across the world, even if they're not religious, even when they claim that they're atheists, which isn't true, but even if they claim that they're atheists, are very, very involved all the time in doing things beyond themselves. They're all working for something. They all have a purpose in their life. They want to live for something. Saving elephants or doing something else. But something bigger than themselves is important. Because there's a burning sense that I'm here to make a difference. I'm here to do good for the world. They're lacking in, in upbringing. Of just so they, in other words, they're sensing their neshama. The neshama they can't, they can't disconnect from. The neshama of the Jew senses life is purposeful. And it's, and it's for a cause much bigger than me. There is a lack of communication because there's a lack of education, of understanding what the neshama really, whose purpose the neshama wants to, wants to, what's the purpose it wants to fulfill. But every Jew is bent from his nature to do that. Now, of course, it's possible, the being that we also have an animalistic soul coming from the dark side, which the dark side 
blocks, obscures, and covers God. Because it covers God, if I don't feel Hashem, then I feel myself. Then I become the purpose of my existence. For what? For having a good time. That's the struggle. Now, as in the story that I had just mentioned, the echad, the oneness, the bringing forth of the unity of Hashem that the Jew is connected to in every moment of his existence is not just in his own life, in his own inner heart of hearts, in his own inner inner being, he acknowledges, he or she acknowledges and recognizes God, but the Jew is all about projecting this unity and oneness into every being, person, object, entity, and every, every experience he has in his life. That's our, who we are and what we are as a people. Our avoda is to take this innate, deep awareness of Hashem Echod and reveal the one in everything. Because the truth of every existence is God. Because if Hashem would pull His energy out of any creature, any being, at any given moment, the thing would poof, go back to absolute non-existence. The only reason it exists because God is creating it. But that truth is hidden and concealed. But when a Jew goes ahead and does a mitzvah, with a certain object, a physical object, he's revealing the echad, he's revealing the one, the power of God, that's creating his body. That's why I'm using my hands, not for me, but to serve God. I'm using my money, not for me, but to serve God. And I'm taking this object, and I'm using it to serve Hashem. And, but mainly in a mitzvah, but it's not only in a mitzvah. It's in everything in life. Every element in life. Because even when we eat, which is not a mitzvah, besides on Shabbos, it's not a mitzvah to eat. Yet, we're eating so that we should have strength to serve Hashem. Especially when we make a bracha. And we say before, just a simple thing is a glass of water. Just a plain glass of water. That a billion, there's eight billion people, there's probably a nice few, probably a nice couple of million people across the world at any given moment drinking a glass of water. And from all those drinking the glass of water, a few million people at every moment, because people are drinking water all around the world. Okay? People on work sites drinking water. People all over. Everybody, right? And yet, from all those, there's a few people that are picking up their glass of water. And before they put the water to their lips, even though they're very thirsty, will stop and will say, Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed are you, God. Elokeinu, my God, Melech Olam. Elokeinu means our power. Melech Olam, the king of the universe. What an amazing declaration. At this very mundane, seemingly meaningless moment. But you're having an encounter with a cup of water and you're a Jew. And guess what's happening? At this moment you are going to declare God as the king of the entire world. And you're going to say, Shahakol, everything. Nia came into existence in his, with his words. All of existence came into being because he said so. That's the bracha. And you're saying, Baruch Atah. Baruch means you're opening up a channel of flow. You want re- God is fully being revealed. The MS, the truth, the oneness of Hashem is in this glass of water. And to a certain degree, you've just revealed God in the entire world. Because your bracha included all of existence. And as Jews all over the world continuously make brachas. And the more conscious we are of this in everything that we do. And mitzvahs that we do. And the languages that we speak. And all the places in the world that mitzvahs are being done. All of this is revealing echad. It's re- re- revealing oneness. In Shabbos, Mincha de Gedavening, we say, Ata echad, you are one. Vishimcha echad, and your name is one. Umi keamcha Yisrael. And who is like your nation, Israel? 
Goy Echod Ba'aretz. Simply you read it, one nation in the world. We're not one nation in the world. We're the 71st nation in the world. We're not one nation. We're amongst 70 other nations, according to the Torah. There's 70 nations. We're 71 nations. What does it mean, Goy Echad? We should not read it, Go Echad, a nation of one. But Goy Echad really means, no, I'm sorry, Goy Echad is not one nation, but rather Goy Echad, a nation of oneness. And the Chiddush of the Jewish people, the novelty of the Jewish people is Go Echad, we are a nation of Echad, Ba'aretz in the earth. Even in our earthly life, in the mundane elements of life, where we are the same as the non-Jew. That's what the Rebbe wanted to point out. He didn't ask him if he put on tefillin today. He didn't ask him if he said Shema today. He asked him, do you eat today? And he wanted to reveal to him the difference of the eating of the Jew and the non-Jew. The difference of the shopping of the Jew and the non-Jew. The difference of every aspect of life. And therefore, Goy Echad, you are a nation of Echad, Ba'aretz, in the earth, in matters of earth, where everybody, where all other beings get lost in the pleasure, in the excitement, in the enjoyment of life, and can forget the unity, the one who's responsible for all of it, the Jew acknowledges, recognizes, and serves his creator everywhere. Goy Echad, we are a people of Echad, revealing Echad, Ba'aretz in the earth. Interesting, we're going to connect this to last week's parsha. Parsha's Truma was the time in which, of, in, in, in which this ideal of Echad, of oneness, became implemented completely. Because really in truth, you know, the Jew mentions the word Echad, the God is one, at the beginning, constantly, it, this is the core of the Jews, the Jews' emunah, his faith, and where, where he is operating from, the consciousness that he's operating from. That's why the first thing we do in the morning, we daven, and what's the, the, the center of our davening shachris? That one pasuk, Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echod, Hashem is one. Same thing at the evening before we go to sleep at night. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echod, by Mariv, and again on our bed, Krish Meshal Amitam. A Jew when he's born, especially a baby boy before his bris, kids gather around his little, little crib. The night before, Vachnach, and everybody reads together, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echod. Last minutes, the last moments before a neshama returns, a person returns his soul to his maker. These are the words, the parting words of a Jew. The last word, the last word, think about it. The last word to leave the mouth of every Jewish man or woman. If hopefully the person has the mindfulness or else the people around them say it on their behalf. Is the word echad. Why? Because that's, that's the Jew. The Jew's entire being is to reveal Echad. What's Echad? Echad is that Aleph, and Echad means one, but it means not just one, but that everything is included in God's oneness. Aleph is the singular one. Aleph means one. Ches and Dalid represents all of space. Ches is eight. In Hebrew, every number, every letter is a number as well. Ches is eight. Seven heavens above, earth below. Up and down are connected to you, God. Dalit are the four directions of the world. So up and down, up means spiritual. And in spirituality, there is higher spiritual and higher spiritual. Because people think that just because something is spiritual, it must be holy. It's not true. Holiness is only something that is done 
with subservience and surrender because it's God's will. You can be engaged in the highest spiritual ecstasy and the deepest spiritual yearnings. And if a person is drowning, God forbid, in a, in a, in a river, and you're busy with your ecstasy and deep, deep, deep meditation, and God wants you to jump into the river to save this drowning person, and you're busy with your spirituality, then it's not holy. And if it's not holy, it's a moment that's disconnected. It's darkness. It's not Kedusha. Kedusha is what Hashem wants. So when we say Echad, we have to recognize that God is the boss in the spiritual. On the earth as well, which is the other extreme. People generally, when we get involved with physical things, we forget ourselves, God forbid, completely in the physical enjoyment and forget Hashem. So we have to reveal Hashem in that physical act as well. And also the four directions which represent also every type of emotion, every type of experience. Everything is included. Everything is powered by the Aleph. Without the Aleph, the Ches and the Dalid, poof, up and down, all six directions, all of existence is zero without the, without the Aleph. The Aleph is the power of everything. And that's what the Jew is connected to. The Aleph that's in the Ches and in the Dalit. So when we go to sleep at night, let's think about it. What's the depth of before Kriya Shema Shalamita? Because when you go to sleep at night, you make a Chesh Benanefesh, you take an accounting. And you're supposed to, this is what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to now review the entire day. And think, is in this entire day, is there a moment, an experience that was outside of the boundaries of Echad? That I do something during the day that I was not mindful. See, the, the, the key word over here is mindfulness all the time. The Shachris Shema is where you're supposed to fix your mind deeply and strongly on the concept of Echad. So you're digging deep into your soul, you're opening your neshama up, you're sensing God's unity in a very powerful way. And that's why you spend a long time before you get to Shema. Well, the whole entire davening is a warm-up. So that when you get to the Shema, you should really be there fully. 100% of your concentration should be inside this oneness. And from there, you take this oneness and remember it all day long. That it shouldn't be a moment when you exit the unity. And remember, what's exiting the unity? Anything, any thought, speech, and action that we're doing in which is not related to our purpose to live for God, that doesn't mean that we can't do, we have, to, we have to work and we have to do all of our physical chores. But all these things are with that higher mindfulness that this is to serve my Creator. Then at night we make a cheshben anefesh, an accounting. And if chas v'shalom we find that, oops, I forgot, I got distracted, I got pulled into this, this got me, that got me. There was a godless moment, something got me really upset and very angry and I forgot that God is the reality of everything. I got too caught up in the food that I was eating that I forgot that there was an I'm only thinking of myself and my pleasure. Or whatever it is, if God forbid, there is a moment that is sticking out from the Echad. So guess what? The beautiful part of the Shema is that I, I can do tshuva, which means the fact that I regret it, I can pull that moment back into the Echad. So when I go to sleep at night, I can sign off that every single thing that happened in the day was included in Echad. Before, chas, before it comes the time for an neshama to go back to its maker at the end of his life, you do the same echad. But this time, it's including the entire, your entire life. Yom Kippur by Ne'ilah, you do it for the entire year. And in the end of your life, a person's life, they're, they're looking back at their entire life and saying, God forbid, there might have been a moment that was outside of the echad. An hour, a day, a week, a month, a year, whatever it is, a decade. 
Right now, I want to bring it back into the unity to be a chod. That's a Jew's life. That's the holiness of a yid. That's echad. So now, when did we practically implement this echad? By the making of the Mishkan. The making of the Mishkan was the first time in history that we took it from a theoretical idea and we put it into actualization because we started taking physical resources of the world and construct a Mishkan and make Nechon. I want to share with you a cons- an idea that I mentioned already in a shir a couple of years ago, but it's so beautiful and it's so related and it's again thought on last week's parsha. And I didn't see it in any safer. It was just a, an occurrence that came to me when I was teaching Chumash for many years on Parshas Truma. And it's such a phenomenal idea that, that illustrates Mamash this point. Last week we were learning about the Krushim, about the beams. The main Mishkan was built from, from Krushim, from beams. So the beams were wooden beams. They were put side by side, one next to each other. Now if you ever looked at the pictures, I mean it would be much easier to understand this if you're listening on the Shear, on the CD or something. Get out of Chumash. Chumash that has pictures of the Mishkan, you'll be able to get this much better. The beams needed to be held together in order for them to become a wall. There were separate beams, big wooden beams, like 20 feet tall or 15 feet tall, about two, two and a half feet wide. Okay? And you put them one next to each other, and side by side, and that's how they formed the wall. But what's going to hold these beams together? They shouldn't fall. So there was something called brichim. Brichim are bars. And the bars were long poles, and these poles were, sl- were sliding through a ring. And when you, let's like imagine you have like a, a bunch of, uh, I don't know what, let's not imagine anything, just imagine the Mishkan, okay? So you have these, these beams, and you have a, a ring on them, and then you take like a broomstick or something, you stick it through, and like this it's holding one next to each other because the broomstick is going through from ring to ring to ring to ring. That's the bar that's holding the things together. Now how many bars were there all together? Now there's three walls on the Mishkan. The front, the east side wasn't closed, it was a, was a, was a partition. But the, the, the rest of the Mishkan, three walls, two sides and the back. Okay? So in each wall, there was like this, three bars. One at chest height. I'm going to use the human figures a bit that will be easier to imagine this. One was at like a chest height. The other one was at knee height. And the other one was like by the hip, like right in the middle. And the difference between them, just to, make, to be clear, is that the one at chest height and the one at knee height was outside of the beam. There was a ring and the poles went into the ring. The one that was at, right in the center, at the hips, okay, at that, at that height, right in the middle, did not go outside the bar. Instead, they drilled a hole through all the beams, and they stuck the, the, the pole right inside in the midst of the beams. Okay, the pole went mamish in the midst of the beams. So you didn't see this pole. All the other poles you can kind of see because... They went through rings, but these were inside, okay, this, this pole. Okay, so if you're looking this way, it seems like there were three poles on each, on each um, three poles on each wall. So altogether, you can end up with nine, but it's not so simple. Rashi tells us, you learned carefully Rashi last week, that the poles that were at knee height and the poles that were at chest height, the ones that went on the outside, did not, the pole was not as long as the wall. The pole was only covering half the wall. So the wall was 30 feet long. The pole only went, was a 15 foot, sorry, not a th- not foot. The, 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 the wall was 30 cubits long, 30 amas, 30 cubits long. Following, everybody following? It was 30 cubits long. Half the wall is 15 cubits. So how long was the pole? 15 cubits. That means that in order to put it through the chest height, 
of the entire wall, how many, how many poles did they need? Two. Okay, one Levite, when the Levites were in charge of putting it together. So one Levite pushed the pole in from one side, one side of the wall, the other one took the other pole, pushed it from the other side, and when the two poles hit, they banged against each other, then the poles were completely inserted. So if this is the case, how many poles are there on one side of the Mishkan, one wall of the Mishkan? Of, of, not including the middle one. Four. Okay, because two on the top, two on the bottom. How many sides do we have to the Mishkan? Three walls. Three walls, three times four is how much? Three times four is twelve. How about the middle pole? The one that went inside. So the middle pole that went inside here is a very interesting idea. So Rashi says there were three poles. But according to the Medrash we know, because Rashi is not talk, telling us the miracle. Rashi is going to shoot it. Rashi says that each wall had one pole for the middle. However, the Medrash, and we all know this, is that the middle pole is called a special miracle happened. It was a very long pole. And what would happen, it was made out of wood. And they would stick it through the hole of the Mishkan. And guess what happened? Even though it was a hard wooden pole, it, would, it snaked around, it went around, it bent, it became pliable. And it went around, in, 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 and it came around the other side. Imagine that, you're sticking the pole in, and when it's getting to the end, it's automatically softening, turning like, a, like you stick a, a, a soft rubbery thing. It would turn around, go in, and you would go, and, and that's how it held the Mishkan. And when you would pull it out, when they had to move it, pull it out, it was firm and stiff. A miracle. Okay, after all, it's God's home. So not everything has to fit exactly according to physical engineering. Okay, so now, how many poles do we have? 13 poles. Now watch the really, 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 really cool thing, which is really crazy. That is what hit me when I was learning the Rashi. Rashi goes on to say that the two walls had, each pole was 15 cubits, besides the long one. 15, 15, 15, and 15, because it's 30 cubits long. So it's 15, 15, 15, and 15. Okay? The back wall was a shorter wall. So the back wall also had four poles, but the whole wall was only 12 cubits. The back wall was not 30 cubits, it was 12 cubits from the outside. So if it's 12 cubits for the back wall, that means the, those, those poles were half the wall. Half of 12 is 6. So the back wall has four pipes, four poles, four bars that are what? Each one 6 cubits long. The side ones have four and four that are the same height, 15 cubits long. Comes out, if I was to lay all the bars down on the floor now in front of you, what would we find? So we would have like this, four poles, six feet long. Four poles, okay, that's for the back wall. Then eight poles, 15 feet long, because you got two walls. And each one has four. So eight poles, how much? 15 feet long. And one pole, how long? We're going to get to that how long it was, but one very long pole. I'm going to save the how long it was for a minute because then you go, wow, this is crazy. So let's leave that. I'll keep that new in suspense. One pole, one, one length. Eight poles, another length. And four poles, another length. What do you have? Echod. The poles are going into the beams. The beams are each one a separate entity. They're not connecting to each other. 
They represent the fragmented elements of this world that are just disconnected from each other. In addition to that, we take the idea that Keresh, Keresh, if you take the word Keresh, which means a beam in Hebrew, and you rearrange the letters, you get the word Sheker. And Sheker means that the world is lying. What's the lying of the world? It's lying that it's separate entities. It's the biggest lie. The lie, the lie is that there is so, that there's a pluralistic world. That's a lie. There's only one MS. There's only one existence. God is one. He is the reality of heaven. He's the reality of earth. He's the reality of south. He's the reality of, of north. He's the reality of blue. He's the reality of pink. He's the reality of everything. Tall, short, everything. He is the reality of all of existence. The world lies. What is our avoda as Jews? We have to take the sheker of the keresh, break the sheker, smash the lie, and uncover the intrinsic oneness. How do we do that? How does one thing within, how do we bring peace to the world? How do we unify? How do we take a world with 8 billion people and unify them? Will there ever be peace in the world? Yes! When all of creation bows down to one creator, then I have no more of a reason to exist than you. Then we all live in harmony. Then every single creature have an, I have an infinite respect for every human being. For every, with the truth. I'm not respecting you because I hope you'll respect me. I'm respecting you because God created you. And you are indispensable for creation. That's the reason why everything can live together. Our job is echad. How do we reveal echad? Aleph, ches, dalid. We put, there's eight bars that are ches. There is four bars that is dalid. And then there's one briachatichain, there's one center aleph. Aleph is the singular essence of God that runs through the entire thing. Now watch this. How long is that pole? Well, 30 and 30 cubits. So it's 30 and 30 is how much? 60. A back wall is 12. 60 plus 12 is 72. That's God's name. Yudke Vavke. The, the tetragrammaton in God's name. If you fill the hidden letters of the Yudke Vavke, Yud, you spell Yud Vav Dalid. Hey, you spell Hey Yud. Vav, according to the Arizal, you spell Vav Yud Vav. And Hey is Hey Yud. I'm not going to do the math right now, but if you do the math, you'll find it's exactly 72. 72 is the name of Yudke Vavke. We, the Jewish people, reveal the Echod in the, in the disconnected pieces. And we unify the world into oneness. And the same is also, Rashi says an interesting thing right in the beginning of last week's parasha, Parsha's Truma. How many different types of materials did the Jews bring for the Mishkan? To construct the Mishkan. Rashi says the donation came from 13 things. Yud, Gimel, Dvarim. 13 things. It's interesting. Because later in the parasha you count there's 15. The Avnei Shoam and the Avnei Malim is another two. Rashi, for whatever reason, doesn't, doesn't acknowledge those two. He wants to tell you about 13 things. Why 13? Because the number 13 is the name of Echod. It's the name of Oneness. And now we'll understand why the other side is terrified of number 13. And why they don't want to put number 13 in a building or number 13. Because 13 scares them like crazy. Why? Because the unholy thrives only when the Echod is not revealed. When the Jewish people uncover and reveal the Echad, just like darkness dis disappears the moment you turn on the light, when you reveal unity, so that which is outside of unity dissipates and disappears. So there is an, they don't even know, subconsciously, the number 13 is terrifying. So don't make a 13. And for us the Jews, 13, 
Bar mitzvah. That's what you. What do you mean bar mitzvah? You start influencing the world. You get it. You now have the. You have the achad. You're 13 years old. You have the power of the achad inside of you. Now you can project. That's what mitzvahs are. Reveal the yut. Reveal the 13. Reveal the aleph and all of your existence. The first mitzvah, actually, the boy does when he's 13 is myrev. That's his first mitzvah. Shema Yisrael, saying Shema, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. It's the first mitzvah that every Jew does. Because that's the first mitzvah he's obligated in, to reveal the Echad when he's 13, number 8, 13. Now they're very scared, but they're not just scared of 13, they're scared of Friday the 13th. This occurred to me last week on a plane. Why Friday the 13th? Why Friday? And that's very simple. Because we know that each day of the week corresponds in the greater scheme of things to a different millennium. So the first millennium was Sunday, was from the year zero to the year thousand. Second millennium was Monday from the year thousand to the year two thousand. And the third millennium was from the year third to two thousand to the year three thousand. That's when we received the Torah and we started influencing the world. It's going to take three and a half millennium to finish the job. It's going to take from the year three thousand to four thousand, sorry, two thousand to three, three to four, four to five. And then when are we going to complete the job? Shabbos is already in year 6,000, is a year already Yom Shakulai Shabbos. It's a day that's completely Shabbos, rest, there's no more struggle, it's already beyond everything. When does Mashiach come? When the Yachad is revealed in the entire world. And when is the Yachad revealed in the entire world? Right at the onset of Shabbos, Friday afternoon. In the history, in the cosmic day of Friday afternoon. This is the time when, when we stop everybody now from 1990 and onwards when Mashiach's light started appearing in the world. And everything that's going on in the world, let's not forget every bit of news you hear in the world today, everything that's happening, all the countries of the world, it's all because everything is moving into position for this great revelation of Echad that's going to take place Friday afternoon as Shabbos, as we make the transition from the madness of the weekday into the tranquility of oneness and into the peacefulness of Shabbos. Friday the 13th, such a dangerous day for the klipa. It's so petrified of it. Haman began that already. Haman comes to Achashverosh and he says, Yeshno am echad. There is a nation of echad, there's a nation of oneness. Amalek is the arch enemy, he's the antithesis to Kedusha. He's the root. He's the inner end. This week is Shabbos Zohar. We have to erase Amalek. Amalek is Gematria Suffolk. He places doubts in the unity of God. He blocks Hashem's the revelation of Achad in the world. Amalek, Haman is the grandson of Amalek. And therefore, Yeshnoi Amechad, he can't stand. Again, and he wants everybody to bow down to him. And Mordechai, Mordechai is Mordechai kneels and he bows to the one that ought to be bowed down to, and we ought to kneel down. That's how we bow down to. Haman wants, he's a god, bow down to me. That's the whole idea of Amalek. So he can't stand. That's why it says, it bothered him to. To kill Mordechai. This was not a personal thing. He's not bowing to me. It's who Mordechai represents. Mordechai is the essence of Echod. The essence of, of, of that oneness. And therefore he can't stand Mordechai. Yeshnai Am Echod. is a nation of Echod. That's bothering him. So which day does he choose? The 13th. Because that's what's bothering him. He's waging war on 13. On Echod. On the oneness of God. It's really, really, really amazing. And the victory of the Jewish people. What happened in the end of the 13? 
That's what it says. The dread of the Jewish people fell upon the nations. Echad took hold. And Echad won. Echad won. Unbelievable. So the Holy Rujana to conclude. The Holy Rujana says on this Pasuk. Yeshnoi, that Haman says, Yeshnoi am echad. There is a nation of echad. There's a nation of oneness. A nation that declares Shema Yisrael, Hashem Alekeinu, Hashem Echoz. Mefuzar o mefoirad beina amim. They are scattered amongst the nations, says the Rujaner. Even though they are scattered, they're not living in a place where they can feed off each other. Each one is living in their own world. Each one has a whole bunch of barrage of stuff happening around them. Beina amim amongst the nations. Right? Vidaseyem shoinois mikolam. And their laws are different than all nations. Even though they live amongst the nations, their laws are different. What does it mean, says the Holy Rujaner? Their laws are different from all the nations means that unlike the nations, that when someone does an act of charity and kindness, something good, they already want to make sure it's in all the newspapers and that everybody knows how good they were and how wonderful they were. The Jewish people are the opposite. They're constantly doing and doing and doing. But, they're always like Benzian, the, 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 the Rebbe's attendant. They're always worried that they're not part of their Echad. They're always worried that maybe that they never feel sufficient. They're always afraid that the rules of the kings, which means the king, which is God, ain't a moisen, they're not doing. In other words, unlike those who do a little bit and they think already that they've done everything, the Jew does and he does and he does and he does and he always feels inadequate. He always feels he didn't do enough. He's always doing tshuva. There's dasei amelech einam oisim. He's always worried that the that the, that, that the rules and the, of the king einam oisim they haven't done, and therefore ulamelech ein shoyve lahanicham, which simply means the king. It's not worth it for you to let them live. That's the simple meaning of the pasuk that Haman says. Says the holy Rujaner, if this is their people. That they are an Am Echad, they're a nation of oneness, even though they're amongst the nations. And even though they're always doing good, unlike the other nations that are boasting, they always feel, as Dasei Amelech Eina Moisen, that they're never ever fulfilling their obligation to their great God, and they're always feeling inadequate. If so, it's not worth it for you, God, to let them, to let them even one second longer in this Gullus. It's time right now for such a people of such great, that have such courage, and such devotion, and such dedication, and to the king, it's not worth it, it's not correct, it's not right, to let them stay in Golos, even for one second, let the true Echad, that we've all been working for, so hard, and so much, and so, so much blood, and so much has been spilled, such sacrifice, all this was given up for the Echad, let that Echad be totally and completely revealed, and we should already experience Purim in 
in Yerushalayim with Mordechai and Esther and the greatest, happiest joy forever and ever. Asher is a bi'ayinim, Asher is a bi'ayinim, Asher is a bi'ayinim.